This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Michael Gregson grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is the second of six kids. He married Alicia Walton in 2010, and they have three kids together. Professionally, he has worked almost 12 years in the hospitality industry for Marriott International, and his current role is with the Provo Marriott Hotel and Conference Center. Michael has been speaking to church groups, addiction recovery centers, and in business settings for the past 12 years. In 2017, the Mormon Channel produced a short video about part of his life titled Returning to Prayer, which highlights his recovery from addiction and his rescue from suicide. In May 2020, Michael started a podcast called Come Towards Delight, and he is on a mission to find everyday people who have overcome trials and darkness to find hope, faith, and light. His interests include people, sports, reading, playing chess with his wife, which I think is awesome, (laughs) hiking, trips, wakeboarding, dodgeball, and chocolate. Good man. Yes. (laughs) So welcome, Michael, to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on this evening. Thanks, Tara. I am so grateful to be here. I am, you know, obviously you and I have have connected a little bit previously um, and I just think what you're doing is, is so important. And I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate that you're, you're bringing a voice to these important things. And, and I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing you're doing. So keep it up. And, and I love, I've heard your story and I've listened to a couple others and, and it's been a lot of fun to listen in. Thanks. Well, and as I had said, for our listeners, Mike's podcast is called come towards delight and it is, uh, equally vulnerable and very elevating podcast. So if you're looking for another good listen, I would highly recommend it. And I was also interviewed for the first time on Michael's podcast. And so I told him before we got started that I feel much more comfortable in this seat than in <laughs> being interviewed. So I'm happy to, happy to be on this end for this, for this podcast. I don't know. You're quite the storyteller. (laughs) Well, thanks. Well, to get started, what can you tell us about just your upbringing and your early life to set the stage? So as you mentioned in in my bio, um, raised in a family of eight people total. So it was, I have an older brother, um, Dan, and then four younger sisters. Um, so I, I grew up in a home with a lot of, of girls and, and, uh, thank goodness for that because they're much better than, than I and my brother were. And so I learned some amazing things from them, but, um, it, uh, we, we moved around a lot when we were kids. Uh, my dad, his father owned, he was a, he, he was a partnership in an oil company and, um, it was, it was called cowboy oil. And, and so my dad and he had two brothers they would move around the country and they'd open up gas stations as they went. And so my childhood really involved a lot of moving around, um, uprooting, going, putting in some roots, uprooting again. By the time I was oh eight years old, I think I had lived in Utah, several different homes. Um, I'd lived in Enid, Oklahoma, which is a small little podunk town. Awesome place, but, but uh, small. And then after that, I, I lived in Red Wing, Minnesota. 
and I lived in Wisconsin for a little while too. And Wisconsin was so fun. We had like 200 acres. We'd go out and shoot my dad's 22 when he had a day off of work and stuff. And so there was a lot of fun involved in that, but, but it was, the hard thing was as a kid is, is you, you know, you start to make friends, you start to feel like you're fitting in a little bit and then you've got to uproot and you go to the next place. And, and after, you know, the first two or three times of struggling with that, I think I just got used to it. And that was the life that, that we lived. And um, so anyway, that, that kind of carried on through my childhood. And as I got to about the age of, I want to say it was around eight or nine years old. Uh, we moved back from, um, uh, Wisconsin to Utah. My dad came back, brought the family back and, and started working in Utah again. And we, we came and we moved into a home where there was actually a mission president, um, Emery Smith. He had just left with his family to go serve as a mission president in Japan. And so we came and we lived there for three years. And then when they came back, we uprooted again and, and we looked for a home and we settled in Holiday, Utah love holiday. And, and the cool thing about that is we had, I had both my grandparents like two blocks away from our house. And so my mom's mom's over here, my mom's parents, my dad's parents were up here. And so I had cousins all over the place and that was fun for me. I feel like we, we put our roots in that's where we we're going to stay. And, and that's where, that's really where we, we settled in. And, and from about 13 years on, that's where we were. Um, and of course, like, like any kid does, you know, you start to go through those, as you get a little bit older, you start to figure out, you know, you start to have questions like, what am I, who am I, what am I doing? You know, um, I love sports. I, I, you know, whatever it is that you love, you still, you're still trying to find yourself. I go to church. I hear these messages about God. I hear these messages about the plan of salvation, uh, do I believe it? Yeah, I have no reason not to, but I don't know anything else, right? Like I, this is this is what I'm taught. This is what I know. If I can stay awake through three hours of church, <laughs> then I can hold on to that idea. Um, I remember, and side note, I remember um, before my mission, when I read the Book of Mormon fully for the first time, I remember getting to third Nephi and going, holy cow, Jesus came to America, you know? <laughs> I know I'd heard that like a thousand times that point, but that was I discovered that that was my uncovering of that moment. So it's interesting how that happens. But, um, it, you know, as I got into my, my early teenage years, I had a love for basketball. Sports were my thing. I, I was a good athlete. I, I was actually a pretty good basketball player. Um, junior high had great experiences there. We had a pretty good team. And then we went into high school. Um, it, I was really excited, you know, high school basketball, just, it was like something I'd always been excited for. And, and, and so that was a big dream of mine that was like, Hey, it's right here on the cusp, but right. Like I'm going to play. And we had a, we had a great coach in our high school, Charlie Whiting, the guy played in the NBA for a while. I had him as my first period teacher. And I don't know what happened. I, I, I had a girlfriend ninth grade and we broke up right before the summer. And I, I, for some reason that just hurt me like quite a bit. Young love is so weird, you know, and, and I, I didn't really understand it. I thought I loved this person and I didn't know how to cope with it, but I didn't know how to talk to it because I thought my parents would probably be ashamed of me for having a girlfriend because I was supposed to go on a mission, right? Like as a kid, you grow up, you grow up and a young man, especially you grow up and you're focused on going on a mission. And so but it hurt, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was weird to go through. So that was going into my 
sophomore year. And as I, as I went in there, I started all of a sudden having all these feelings, like where the heck are all these feelings coming from? And it was just emotions. It wasn't really necessarily around this breakup or whatever, if you will. It was just, I couldn't really find balance in my day. Um, and, and so as I was a sophomore in high school, which in Utah, you start when you're in 10th grade. Um, I just, I felt like my focus was so hard to maintain in class. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I, th I thrived at all. I wasn't really engaging. I wasn't learning. And I was, I was ashamed, like this shame started to come and I don't know what it was. Um, I sat there and I'd listen and I, I would compare myself to everybody else in the class for the first time in my life. And I felt like every other kid was like, happy to be there, right? Grass is always greener. These kids are all excited to be sitting in mm. class and they want to be learning and everyone knows the answers. And, and, and I, it's so strange how we do that to ourselves as kids. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we feel like there's a problem with us, we look at everybody else and we're like, they're so good at that. Why can't I be like them? And I was doing that to myself hardcore. And I don't know why I still to this day can't put my finger on that, but shame started to enter my life. And, and yet I would go home and I had a loving home. You know, I had a mom and a dad who loved me. I had um, siblings who, you know, we, we loved each other. We fought a little bit, but we loved each other. And, and I had a lot of cousins and, and good things surrounded my life. And so I can't really say, I can't really explain what it is or put my finger on it. Um, but anyway, going into basketball tryouts that sophomore year, um, I, I felt so bad sitting in class, feeling like I, my brain just wouldn't engage and, and I wasn't learning that I decided that, hey, I saw friends selfing class. We can do that in high school. I guess you can do it and get away with it. So after I did it a couple of times and didn't get caught for it, I kind of thought, huh, this is kind of cool. Like, I don't have to go to class. So I started spending time with these friends that, that were skipping out on classes, and, and I missed a lot of school. And um, the, the first day of tryouts came, and I went, and great, you know, great day. I, I really did have a spot on the team. And... Um, we got our report cards that next day, early in the day. And, and this, it was the second day of tryouts after schools over that second day. And on my report card, report card, I got a 1.8. And in high school, you have to have a 2.0 to play. I mean, that's average, right? Mm -hmm. I got a 1.8. And as soon as I saw 1.8 in my mind, I was a failure. Um, in my mind right then, I, I quit. Um, I cut myself from the basketball team by not showing up later that day. My coach came and talked to me the next day, the next morning, he pulled me out of class and he said, what are you doing? And I, and I, I, I had no response for him. I, I had no passion in me to say, coach, I'm so sorry. I, I made a big mistake. Is there any way possible for me to come and try and, and to make up for that? In my brain as a young kid, I thought because I had a 1.8 and I needed a 2.0, I was done. And so I just, I gave up and I quit. And, and at that point, I, I was on an AAU team, which is uh, kind of a, a, an accelerated team, if you will, to a higher level than like a, a rec team. And, and I was, again, I was pretty good. And I was, I was starting to struggle with my relationships with my mom and dad. And, and I remember going into my, my high school year, my dad actually kept me back from playing in a couple games because of behavior. Um, I just, I wasn't listening. I wasn't doing well. I'd get in fights with my mom every Saturday morning because I wouldn't clean my room and it became this like day long battle. 
And, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I had to be different than my other five siblings for some reason. And I couldn't fall into line with some of those things. And it, it's so funny because as an adult now, you look at that and you go, hey, buddy, it takes two minutes to clean your room. <laughs> And you argue right. about it all day and it could have been done. You know what I mean? So, so it, these, these things just kind of started to snowball within me. And all of a sudden you've got this kid that just quit basketball, which is my love. And I'm, I'm, I feel like the biggest failure in the world and I've got all this shame within me and it's tearing me apart. And, and so the next, some, the next term in school um, I maintain about a 1.8, 1.6, and that's kind of where I stay. And, and all of a sudden, all these red flags are going off in my mom and dad's brains, like, what's wrong with our child? And so they're coming down downstairs after I get my report cards, trying to have conversations with me in my room. And son, what do we need to do? What, what, what do we need to do? What's, what's wrong? What's happening? And, and the other siblings of mine, that, that my oldest brother, my older brother, Dan, and my sister, who is about a year and a half younger than me, were doing phenomenal in school. I mean, these are like, they, they, they go to school, they get basically straight A's, they go and do their piano and, and they go do these piano recitals and they get these things called superiors, which means you play really well and you bring home a little trophy. And, and I, you know, I've got my junior jazz and my t-ball trophies and that's about it. But it's, it, it all of a sudden becomes a comparison thing to me. And so parent-teacher conferences became mom and dad coming home, going around, talking about everybody, how great they did, rightfully so. And then getting to me and saying, you know, Mike, your parents or, or your, your teachers just, just tell us that you have so much potential. And what, what do we need to do to help you reach that potential? And, and to a young mind, that hurts. And, and I don't fault my parents. My parents did a phenomenal job. They were amazing parents. Um, but I, I just didn't, I, I don't, I didn't know how to take accountability. I didn't really understand that and come to find out my parents decided to take me to counseling. They, they felt like something was wrong. And so they took me to a counselor and, and I went in to meet with a counselor and sat down and talked to them. And um, it was hard for me to engage with this counselor. I, the, the first question, I'll never forget this, but the first question he asked me as a young 14 year old boy is, if you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be and why? And even as a 14 year old, I just looked at him and I went, come on. Like, yeah, what, like what is that? Time. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I, you, listen, he could have been awesome, right? He could have been phenomenal, but I didn't give it a chance. Like I, I didn't buy into a whole lot at that point in my life. And um, so anyway, uh, moving on, I, I was diagnosed with uh, depression and ADHD um, back then, you know, this is, this is 93, 94. And back then these things were kind of the things you don't talk about, right? Like if you have to take medication for, for depression or ADHD, you don't really say anything to anybody. Your family doesn't say anything to anybody except for maybe their, you know, the relatives or whatever, but it's like, it's kind of a hush hush thing. And, um, and, and so, and I kind of felt different right off the bat. And so my mom would give me the medication in the mornings and I would go to school, I'd take it in a little baggie. And, and as soon as I get to school, I'd walk past the garbage can, I'd throw it in the trash can. Because I, I, I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to be that kid that everybody looked at and went, yeah, guy's got a lot of problems. Um, because that's how I felt inside. I, I didn't know, 
I don't know what it was like to be an outsider looking at me at that moment in my life, but, but on the inside, I was broken and I was breaking apart. And yet I've got this stable home and these wonderful parents back home that are just feeling crushed. Um, I had an experience in, in my um, junior year where I, in a term, um, there's, I want to say there's about nine, 80 to 90 days of school in a term. And I missed about 60 or so days. And I wasn't any, I, I wouldn't go anywhere. I, I, I wouldn't like leave school grounds and go to a friend's house and, and, and get into trouble. I would go to the gym and I would play basketball and I would literally play basketball against the basketball players and beat them for the most part. And I'm sure the coaches watched me and went, what the heck is this guy doing mm-hmm. wrong with this guy? Um, and, and a PE teacher did approach me one time, but she knew that if, if she made me feel like I couldn't be there, then I would go somewhere else and it wouldn't be good for me. So I think she just let me hang out and she kind of knew what was going on. But anyway, I, that, that one term, I got my report card back and it said 0.8. And I remember looking at that card sitting in my desk and just going, this is what I am. I'm like a 0.8. There was a lot of shame around that feeling. And I went outside. I, my, my mom was there to pick me up. I went outside. I gave her the report card as I was sitting in the car with her. And automatically the tears started to come. And she turned and looked at me and said, what do we have to do? What do I have to do? And I said, mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. And, and she continued to weep. And then after a couple of minutes, I turned to her and said, can I go have a sleepover with my friends? Like, I just, I was so disengaged. I didn't really get it. I had some friendship problems in the midst of that. And, and, and I, I take accountability for that because I wasn't really in a, in a good place. I had a lot of friends up to about that time in my life. And then all of a sudden I kind of, I kind of disassociated or disconnected from them because I wasn't playing sports on the teams with them. And so I felt like maybe there, you know, I couldn't be at the lunchroom. I'd go sit at different tables with different friends. And I can't, I kind of tended to go to the friends that were, were more into partying and things like that. And so that became something that I started to do in my childhood. Um, I, I'll never forget uh, at a party taking my first drink. I always said my whole life, it said I'd never do it. And then just on a whim, um, in like a two second thought, I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. I had no idea. And I drank and I, I'll never forget the feeling and, and um, bright lights, flashy lights. And it, it, it makes you forget, makes you not feel that shame and that depression for a while. I didn't drink a lot when I was that age, but I, I had started to kind of dip my toe in that water a little bit enough to, enough to find that, Hey, this thing kind of allows me to like break away from this life of shame that I'm living right now. Mm-hmm. You, you keep using the word shame and comparison. What can you say about this concept of shame? Why was that so integral in your story and keeping you from moving forward in your life? Comparison is the thief of joy, right? When we start to compare ourselves to others, we're always going to see things in other people that we, we like, but that doesn't mean that we don't have that ourselves. I think we just forget sometimes that we, we have those things. Um, shame, shame, is like the, the worst form of self-talk that you can have. You know, I may hear something really nice from my mom and dad, like, oh, hey, you know, great job here, or you did really well here. But, I'm, but, but shame, my inner voice is telling me, 
whatever. They're just telling you that because they want you to clean your room on Saturday or they don't want to fight with you about this. But that's what shame does is it, 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 it creates this barrier within you where even the good stuff that's being told to you, you deflect it because you don't believe it. Because on the inside, you see yourself as totally different and it's dark and um, you're not willing to accept some of those things that people are saying because if, if, if you do accept it, it means you have to, it means you need to like live up to it. And that's hard to do. Um, that shame is also kind of in a way it keeps us, it keeps us safe in that spot that we're in right there um, with what's going on in our life. We don't have to change, although we need to. We just don't understand how. I think for young kids, especially, a lot of times we just don't have the tools to understand what, what shame is. And, and, and one, I'll tell you one thing, Tara, the gospel of Jesus Christ it gives us the opportunity to help every single person in this world understand their value, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when kids are growing up and we hear commandments, 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 so important, right? Like it's so important. That is so true. But what it, what it does in a child's mind is it teaches the child there's an expectation. And if you don't hit this expectation, you're not going to go here. And where, this is where you want to go because this is where everybody that's good makes it to. But if you're not if you're not keeping these commandments, you're somehow going to go here. I feel like as teachers, as parents, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to do a better job of helping children understand this is a classroom. That's the test. It's a classroom. We have room for failure. We're supposed to make mistakes. That's the purpose of this life. That's why Christ came because we were supposed to make mistakes. If we, if we weren't supposed to make mistakes and we were supposed to live perfectly, there'd be no need for a savior. Well, there's an, he's the most central and important part of the plan, which means we're supposed to make mistakes. That doesn't mean I'm going to go out and do them because somebody tells me that what that does is that allows me the ability to give myself a little room. It give it allows me to give myself a little grace, a little mercy and say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to keep going for me. Somehow I missed that message. You know, my, my grandpa on my mother's side was, was a mission president when I was a young kid and became a general authority right after. And so as the second oldest grandson in, in this family, there's nothing that's being told to me by, by my mom and dad that are putting tons of pressure on me, but I feel it innately because I'm seeing this. Like I understand, I understand, you know, I, I see the way people look up to my grandpa. In fact, both my grandpas and grandmas, right? Amazing people, gospels, everything. We talk about missions every Sunday, every Sunday, which is so cool. Nothing wrong with that. But I, I all of a sudden get this mentality that like, I have to be perfect. My older brother is perfect. I mean, I'm out, I'm out as a sophomore going to parties, making dumb decisions. And I come home and this kid's reading his book of Mormon at three and at two in the morning. Like what, what's wrong with me? Right. Shame is the adversary's most sharp weapon that he has. He doesn't have to get us to fall in line with him. All he's got to do is make us feel like we're awful and that we're the worst. And so whenever we make those mistakes, he can pounce you know, he can beat us up with those mistakes and he keeps that inner voice in there going off that we are just the worst. But what wasn't happening for me is, is that space and that mercy and that grace to say, hey, son, 
your mistakes, that's awesome. Let's celebrate a mistake. Looking back at my life, my failures, my biggest mistakes have led to the best parts of who I am. And I wouldn't change anything about it, but because I didn't give myself grace and mercy, like I know Heavenly Father does, I almost drove myself to ending my life um, because I thought it was that awful. So here I am as a, as about a 17 year old, 16, 17 year old kid. Um, I've got some big decisions to make in my life. Am I going to go on a mission? You know, I get asked this question every, every week and every other day. And am I going to finish high school right now? That's all of a sudden in, in the question as well. And I was depressed. I was really depressed. I kind of would go to video games at this point. I never really got into them a lot as a younger kid, but because I stopped playing basketball so much, I kind of went to video games as like my outlet to turn off my brain. So if I wasn't partying with my friends on the weekends, I'd be playing video games after school all day. And I just disconnect. I just disconnected. Connection is so important. One day I'm, I'm at home and I'm sitting in my living room my dad comes home from work and I'm, and I'm sitting there and I, I look like I'm depressed with my body language. And he can tell right off the bat, he looks at me and, and he sees me and he doesn't say a word. He goes, he goes in the other room. And that's not like my dad. He's, he's a pretty socially happy, happy guy, energetic guy. And um, so I noticed that I didn't think anything of it, but a, a couple minutes later, he came up back up the stairs and was walking into the area where I was. And I was sitting on the couch and he walked up to me. And he had a Book of Mormon in his hands. And he said, son, I think it's time for you to read this book. I encourage you to read it. And he put it down on the coffee table, didn't say another word, and he walked away. I grew up in a home where, like many other LDS families, we read First and Second Nephi a thousand times, right? <laughs> I think a few times we made it past the war chapters in Alma, but... Um, I, I read with my family pretty consistently throughout my life. We did those things. I heard about it in church, but I had never, I'd never cracked it open myself personally, never tried. I hated reading. And I sat there on the couch and I looked at it and I knew that I was in a bad place. And I knew that there was a big decision in front of me about serving a mission. And I loved my grandpa. I loved my dad. I loved my, my other grandpa. And these guys were all about their missions, right? I, so I heard stories like how awesome they were that my whole life growing up. And I knew if I was going to tell them I'm not going to serve a mission, I had, to, I had to have passion behind that and say, I don't believe in it. I don't, I know I'm not going to go and stand my ground. So I needed to know that. And as I sat there and I looked at the book, I had this feeling in my heart and in my mind, a whisper go read the book. And at first I thought, nah, I hate reading. I don't want to do this. This is, this is a huge commitment. This is a big book for a, <laughs> a 16 year old kid. It doesn't like to read. And, and it came again, go read the book. And so I picked it up and I went downstairs in my room and I sat on my bed and I held the book for quite a while and I just stared at it. And then for the first time in my life, I got down on my knees and I offered a sincere prayer on my own, willingly. And I, and I prayed and I just said, Heavenly Father, I, you know, I, I'm not sure you're there yet. Um, I don't have any reason not to believe that you're there, but I don't know that. And I'd like to know. I, I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book and I'm going to give it a chance. 
please just tell me if it's true or not. And if you'll do that, I promise you, if, you, if, if it is true and you do let me know that it's true, I will go on a mission and I will give everything that I have. And so I started to read the book that night and I started slow. I think it was only a few verses at a time. Um, all of a sudden my life changed. Hmm. It, my parents look back at this period of time in my life and they say, it's like a light switch flipped on and it's very true. Um, all of a sudden, instead of walking through the halls of school and looking down at the floor, going slow, moping, hoping people didn't recognize me because I was that guy that used to be really good at basketball that everyone knew was on the team and he cut himself because his grades are awful and what the heck's wrong with him. All of a sudden, I'm looking in people's eyes and smiling and I'm engaging and I want to know how they're doing and, and I'm talkative and I'm, I've got energy in my life and I'm happy again. And my grades start going up. I made the, I made the high honor roll um, during this time. I finished the Book of Mormon my junior year. I was about 17 and a half or so. And the day I finished it, I was down in my room. And I knew I needed to say a prayer. I, you know, I'd, I'd heard about the promise. And I, and I knew that the, the promise in the Book of Mormon is if you read, ponder, and pray, and ask God if it's true that by the power of the Holy Ghost, he'll let you know the truth of all things. And so I took that promise. I got on my knees. And as I started to ask, I had a flood of light in my heart and in my mind. And I've never, I will never be able to explain the feelings that I had. They're, they're real. They're beautiful. I felt loved. And I knew it was true before I even asked him. And so right then and there, while I was on my knees, I promised him that I was going to serve a mission and give everything I had. And so from that point on going forward, I, I got myself ready. I, I had to make up a lot of school. So I did summer school the next two summers, but I graduated and, and, uh, it was exciting. I felt really good. And I put in my papers to serve a mission had to wait some time to, to get some things taken care of, but I put in my papers to serve a mission and um, got called to serve in Indiana. And Indiana is where my grandpa served back in the fifties. And so automatically, oh, cool. I just, yeah. And automatically I just feel like, God, you're aware of me. Like my grandpa was one of my heroes and he was his whole life. He just passed away last October. And so I'm sorry to get emotional, but no, his whole life was dedicated to missionary work and service. And so was my grandma's. And, and so I just looked up to them as heroes. And so when I got called to Indiana, it's like, it's like Heavenly Father said to me, I know you. I love you. Don't forget that. And so I was on fire. And, and in the meantime, I'd had a chance to go out to my grandpa's mission in England. He was a mission president over the England Manchester mission. And I went out to see that. And I was just, I was on fire. I mean, like talk about a kid, like I'd failed everything up to this point in my life. And so this was going to be the one thing that I was going to take and I was going to give everything I had. And I went to England and their mission was amazing. And when the missionary sang, it was powerful. And like, here I am this young kid about to go. And I'm just like, yes, like I'm ready. <laughs> and so I go to Indiana and right off the bat, I get called to Purdue campus. And so 
um, all of a sudden I've got to go stop groups of, of young college students who are engineers and way brighter than I am. You know, I'm the kid that failed school because I never went to class. And I've, I'm stopping huge groups of these kids talking to everybody, trying to figure out what the heck to say to people to get them to convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's tough, but I, I don't quit. And, and all of a sudden I start to see miracles happen every day on my mission just miracle after miracle. And I had nothing to do with it. All I did was choose to do it and be obedient and give everything I had. And the, the, what I saw him do to people's hearts, to people's lives. Um, I absolutely knew Christ and I love him. And that's what makes the last part of my story so hard. Because when I came home, my parents came to get me and that three days we spent in the mission, I had, I had like this full box of Book of Mormons and everywhere we went, like we'd stopping at gas and I'd just go run around and give Book of Mormons to everybody and testify. And I think that's who I was as a missionary. I would talk to everybody, but I think part of me wanted to show my mom and dad, like you can, you can be proud of your son, mm. right? Like, some, somehow, some way I needed to let them know they didn't fail me. They did the best they could. And they were amazing parents. And, and I made it tough on them. It's, that's true. But I didn't know how to do it. Neither did they. So it's like we're all figuring this thing out. <laughs> we're together. all guinea pigs, right? <laughs> right? We're so hard on each other. But um, it, was a, it was a shining moment. And when we got on the plane to fly back, my mom was sitting next to me and I got really emotional, Tara. I mean, I, I, I felt like I was dying. I'd never thought beyond my mission. My whole life, I'd never thought beyond my mission, except for when I was younger playing basketball, I thought I'm going to play in the NBA. Now that, that dream <laughs> you ended, and every other 12-year-old yeah, boy. <laughs> that dream ended quick, right? Nobody goes from playing junior high ball to the NBA. So anyway, um, but when, when I was sitting on that flight, it just all of a sudden it hit me. I, if I could have stayed on my mission the rest of my life, I absolutely would have at that point in my life. Now I wouldn't because I, I, I understand, but um, it felt like I was dying. And so anyway, I came home, threw myself into school, tried to stay busy. You're so busy as a missionary. It feels so good serving that you just try and engage. You try and throw yourself into everything to keep yourself busy. And, and I, I think a lot of times as missionaries, we feel we, sometimes we feel like we are like we have our worth because of how busy we are, right? But we're busy mm -hmm. doing such good things. In the real world, it's different. We're busy, but maybe it's not the best thing in the world, right? So I, I start doing like 20 plus hours in school. I'm working 30 hours a week trying to pay my own way and everything. And I'm just trying to figure this thing out. All the while, I'm not the best student. I learned how to study. Um, on my mission, but I'm not the best student still because I, I did makeup work. Makeup work is not the same thing as being there in class every day, listening, paying attention, engaging. They kind of set it up for people to be able to pass through it so they don't get left behind, right? So as I'm sitting in college with my algebra teacher, I'm going, I have no idea what you're saying. This is like Chinese right now. So I'm like trying to argue with the algebra <laughs> teacher. Like, when am I ever going to use this? He's like, if you're going to construction, I'm like, I'm not going to go into construction. So it doesn't matter. So, but, but I just, it, all of a sudden, I start to feel like I'm not good enough again. Like I'm not getting it. Everybody else is getting it. I'm not getting it. And, and I start dating 
and um and i and I'm, I'm starting to like throw myself in all these different directions and everything is fine but the small things um taking time for myself making sure i'm connecting with god every day studying my scriptures saying my prayers those things start to fade away slowly over time and i never stopped believing in god never stopped believing in christ not at all i never would i never could but i got so busy that that just it, it it became something that i just kind of shelved for a while and said i'll come back to this when i need it sundays every sunday i'm going to check in and i'm going to be on fire on that sunday but every other day like i've got so much going on and it's good right i'm trying to get married i'm trying to have a family i'm trying to get myself to the point where I have, you know, a good job in my future. Well, I, I, I got to the point where I started to struggle in school so much that my self-esteem just kind of slowly started to dip. And um, I, as I was dating, um, I started to get serious with this one girl. And there were some red flags for both of us, you know, like, yeah, it was fun. We had a great time. And, and after a while we got engaged and, and we did end up getting married, but we shortly after the honeymoon, we started to argue and fight and um, it, it was bad. It was really bad. And we didn't have any, we didn't have any connection to God, either of us. We, we weren't, we weren't keeping him there. And so it was a very selfish um, relationship and, and it ended very quickly and we're, we, we were divorced um, and we were sealed in the temple. And so when, when you're sealed in the temple, which we believe is for time and all eternity, and, and that now is broken in my life, I look back at this trail in my life, and I've got a, a, just a trail of messes and failures, and I quit at certain things. And now here is an eternal marriage that I've shattered. That's the highest, you know, covenant that we can make, right? Hmm. So what, what am I good at? Anything? And um, immediately after that, my self-esteem was shot. And so instead of going and reconnecting with God, um, which I knew that I should have done, I turned to drinking. And I just wanted to numb out. I hurt. It hurt a lot. And so for a while, I lived in Utah after divorce. But I had a cousin call me from Arizona and say, hey, come live down here. You need a fresh start. It's not that I'd done anything um, in, to, for the divorce that was like bad and I needed to feel ashamed about that, but it's just the fact that I went through one, right? Right. And it was a failure. And, and he's like, come down here, new start, just a fresh start. It'll give you a break for a while. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So I moved to Arizona. And for the first couple of months, I tried. You know, I went to the singles ward, kind of jumped in with some friends met, met cool groups of people. But at night, as I'd come home, I just felt broken. Um, I'm the now divorced guy that's 24 years old. And it's like the guy from Utah that moved down to, I mean, it just, in my brain, that shame comes back, right? It's that mm -hmm. inner voice. It's like, Hey, no matter how much fun you're having and they're laughing with you and you're having a great time together inside, they're questioning you going, man, this guy's, this guy's a mess. Right. And no, it's so unfair to do that to yourself, but I did. And so I would turn to alcohol because it would turn off that inner voice. And so I'd come home and I drink and that carried on for a few months. 
and I started working at a, a company where I met another um, a, a friend of mine who was LDS um, that w- just had gone through divorce himself as well. And he was feeling a lot of shame as well. We were kind of in the same boat, if you will. And um, so we decided that, hey, you know, um, well, let's start going to clubs at night. And Arizona is, has quite the nightlife, if, if you've ever been. Um, for young college kids around Scottsdale area, they, they have a lot of clubs that are loud and crazy and bright lights. And we both got hooked pretty quick. Um, we just thought like, this is giving us something that, you know, we haven't felt for a while, making us feel like we belong somehow, mm-hmm. making us feel like we could forget about stuff. We could meet all these new people, the opposite sex and have fun. And like, just, we started, we started going to the club basically every single night. I know that you had said when you were younger, a little bit of alcohol um, to numb out and also gaming. And now as an adult post-divorce, do you feel like the club was also the the way to numb out and just to disengage from real life? Absolutely. Um, So it wasn't gaming anymore. It was, it was drinking it was smoking marijuana and it was the club. Um, so during the day I, I, I'd go to work and I'd, I'd work hard. I'd do my thing. I'd, I made pretty good money as a single guy. And then at night I'd come home and I didn't want to just sit in shame. And at that mm-hmm. point, I didn't want to go connect with anybody at church because I wasn't worthy to be around those people that were going to church. And so where did I go? Well, I went to the place that, that broken people sometimes go to. And, and, and I'm sorry, that was a little bit rude, but sometimes broken people go there, but people go there that, to have fun, you know, and mm-hmm. to forget and to unwind and dance their problems away. And, you know, I, Tara, I don't know if I thought I was going to become the next Michael Jackson breakdance <laughs> or what, but I, like it was, it, we had a lot of fun and that's what I, I wanted to feel. I didn't want to feel so much pressure um, in my life. And I didn't know help in a healthy way, how to go forward with that or the Mm -hmm. the point where I was at. So I went to the easiest fix I could find. And that's what this was. And, um, anyway, so that continued on for quite a while. Um, probably in total about three, three and a half years. And I, I hadn't been to church. I stopped reading my scriptures prayer completely. It'd been a long time. Um, fortunately there were some, some people put in my life that, still kept me connected to the church. Um, I had some friends down in Arizona that I worked with the Swear family that were just amazing to me. And they, and, and they could tell my life was kind of falling apart and they would wrap their arms around me anyway. Um, so after about three and a half, four years, um, coming home from the club one night and I, and I get a DUI like a block away from my house. The cop sees me lights. I pull into the driveway. And as I'm sitting in my driveway, he comes up and knocks on the window. And I go, my, my buddy gets out of the car and runs inside the house. And I'm sitting there by myself. And I turn and look at him. And I said, yeah, I've been drinking. And that was, that was a rock bottom for me. It wasn't the only rock bottom. That was the first rock bottom. Because then at that point, all of a sudden, here come the floodgates. Things kind of open up. And, and now I've got to tell you know, my parents, that my car has been impounded. I've got to ride a bike 17 miles to work one way in the Arizona sun. And holy cow, that's hot. So I think I'd pedal faster because the air felt like it was somewhat (laughs) of a fan and I just sweat more is awful. Um, 
but anyway, I, I did it. And, and, and my depression was, was sky high at that point. It was hard to feel good about myself. I found it a little bit at work because I was still doing well. I was, I was working for a, a car dealership and I was doing pretty well. But I, but I didn't feel like I had a future there. I didn't feel like my life was going anywhere at all. I felt like the only thing that I had as an identity is this party life scene. Like I could go throw myself into that and be the biggest partier that was there at the club. And yet, as I'm like doing that, if anyone ever says anything that has anything to do with God or uh, um, Jesus or missions or whatever at the club, I heard it once or twice, like I would stop and I'd talk to him about it. And I'm like, this guy that's like, you know, I'm not in a place where I should be talking about it. That's just, that was just how my life was broken. I was so broken as I'm going through all this hitting this spot where it's really dark for me. Cause there's, I don't see any future. That's good. Um, in that zone, I get a call from my dad and he says, son, I've, I've, I've been having headaches for about two and a half weeks. Um, everything's going to be fine. We're going to get, we're going to get checked out, but I I've learned that I've got a lump in my brain and they're going to do a biopsy on it. And don't worry, it's going to be okay. But when I was on the phone with him, I just had this feeling, go home. You need to drop everything you're doing and go home. And uh, he got emotional on the phone. I did as well. And, and I think he knew. I, I, something inside of him, I think he knew um, that his time on earth was going to be short from that, that moment on. And I, and I, I, felt, I felt something that, that made me understand that I need to get home. So I did, I, I dropped everything. I packed my bags. I got on a Greyhound bus for crying out loud. And I, I went up to Utah and I don't know that I stopped to think about, Hey, I got to change my life. Cause I'm gonna go live with my mom and dad who are like as good, as good Christian LDS commandment keeping family as you can find. And I'm broken. And I, I guess I just didn't put two and two together. That's probably not a good match. And so I went and lived, I went and stayed with my mom and dad right off the bat. And I'm sure when I got there, they just were, went, oh my gosh. You know, my dad knew what was going on to a certain extent, but he didn't know the depth of where I was. And when I went back to Utah and I saw my dad struggling, he was, he was my, he was the one person that would call me knowing that I wasn't living the best life and he wouldn't judge me for it. He wouldn't sit and talk to me about why aren't you doing this or why aren't you living this way? What do you need to change? He wouldn't say any of that. He knew that I needed to make changes, but he believed in me. He gave me the benefit of the doubt. And I think he knew that eventually it would come together for me. I kind of needed to go through the struggle where I was. He would love me on the phone. He'd tell me of my worth and my value. He'd remind me of my mission because that to me was still the shining spot of my life. And he'd always remind me how much Heavenly Father loved me. And then I'd move on. And here, here goes my one confidant that I feel okay talking to. Ten months after that phone call, he died of brain cancer at 52. And, and my, my world was just, it was shaken. That's where I hit, you know, my, my biggest rock bottom. 
every day at that point became, how can I forget right now? As soon as I wake up and I would start to drink as soon as I woke up in the morning, I'd go to my jobs and I drink while I was on my jobs because when people abuse substances, we, we try and escape ourselves because we hate ourselves. And so we start to think that this substance is almost making us to a point where people can stand us. And we're more excited about life just because we have a substance in us. And, and we really start to believe these lies. And so we feel like we have to go to this thing to, to get us to this place. And the problem is your body your body gets used to it. And so you have to use more and you have to do more, more and more and more to get that feeling and to be back there and your body can't handle that much. And so you, you kind of do it so much where you don't even, you don't even, you don't remember anything. You're in it. You kind of black out. And I was drinking completely by myself when I was back in Utah. And um, I went through a couple of experiences where because of my DUI, um, I had to leave Arizona early before I took care of everything. I went back down there and, and as soon as I went in front of the judge, they, they put me in jail for a while. And then I came back home and I had a couple other experiences, uh, run-ins with the law because of going to clubs and, um, getting kicked out, trying to go back in. Long story short, I, I had to spend some time in jail on different occasions and one time for a full 30 days, the month after my dad died. And so I've got a full 30 days in jail to think about how I just lost my father and what a mess my life is. The, the good thing is I, I got sober at that point. And so I had some clarity. I felt like I reconnected with God a little bit then. And I never stopped believing in him. So I feel like I reconnected with him just a little bit. But as soon as I got back out, my habits hadn't changed. My, my, the shame of who I was hadn't changed. Um, I, I didn't know how to fix that Tara. I didn't, I, I, at that point in my life, I needed a miracle because I didn't know how to pick up the scriptures anymore. I didn't think that could fix what I had done to my life. I thought I had taken my, myself to a place where God as my father would be very disappointed in me. And that's so wrong. And I think somewhere deep down inside, I knew better than that, but I just couldn't connect with that. I couldn't believe that because I knew that I was such a failure. In these dark times, my mom did a really good thing. She kicked me out of her home. I was actually living in a friend's foreclosed home. I had nowhere to go. I had no running water. I had no electricity. I had nothing. And so I would bounce from job to job because I would drink at my jobs. And these were like call center jobs, like really just like entry level jobs that they they will give to anybody that will come and work right and on the way to work i would i would stop and i would shave in the sink of the the ihc you know ihc hospital bathroom because i didn't have running water and i would walk from place to place and ride the bus from place to place there's nothing wrong with that but for me as i walked and as i rode the bus i sat in my own mind and thought how awful i was if I didn't have alcohol in my system, that's all I could think about. And it got to the point where I'd wake up in the morning and it got so dark for me that I didn't want to live anymore. I was done. And I'll never forget, I was, I was working this call center job and I was sitting there and it was 
about 10 o'clock in the, in the day. I'd been at work for about two hours and I got off a phone call. I stood up and I put my phone down without saying a word to anybody. I just left. It was time, time for me to get rid of myself. Um, I, I was thinking about suicide at that point in my life. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I, I literally was going to go home and end my life. I was, I, I was tired. I was depressed. I was, I hated me. I hated me. And the pain was so hard to bear the pain of what I'd done. And so I went home to my house to figure out what I was going to do. And there, there's a picture of Jesus Christ that my dad drew on his mission back in the late seventies. And it's all in dots. It's stipling. It's a beautiful picture. And I had always taken that picture with me everywhere I went. I still loved Christ. I just thought, I thought it was a disappointment. And, and I, I went in my room and I grabbed this picture. It was up on my wall. I grabbed it and I, I, I held it in my hand and I, I raised it up and I just started screaming with all the energy of my soul at God. And I said, you're omniscient. You're all wise. You're all knowing. And you created me. And you put me here at this time, in this place. This is on you. You're a failure. And I hate who I am. You made me. This is on you, not me. And I was so angry that I just screamed for about a half an hour. And I lost all my energy. And I fell down on the bed. And I was, I was crying like a, a weeping, just, just like a child, just crying broken and here comes that whisper again mike get on your knees and say a prayer and i i literally respond I knew i'd recognize the voice it's been a long time since i've heard it i recognize the voice and i said i i just got done yelling at you i threw in a few f words and all the other words and i i don't think you want to talk to me right now and it came again mike get on your knees and say a prayer and so I rolled off the bed, I got on my knees, and I, I, I had no idea what to say, no clue. The only thing I could get out of my mouth was help me, help me. And as soon as I said those words, like a rush, I just felt him wrap his arms around. I felt perfect love fill my heart and my mind. In that moment, he told me, there's nothing you can do. I love you. I always will. And I want you home. And I, I knelt there for a long time, but I knew I had to try. I had to trust that. And so I started to go back to church and... I was so broken, Tara. I went to church and I set up an appointment. Like I, 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 I was so, I was ready. Like I was ready to try. I knew my dad was watching me and I made some promises with him before he died. So I was ready. I, I, I felt what I needed to feel. God gave that to me. 
but I didn't know how to do it. So I go to church, I go up to the bishop. I'm like, hi, I'm Mike. I'm in your ward now. Can I come talk to you? I really need to talk to you. <laughs> so yeah, sure. So I go to, I go sit in his office that next Sunday and he, and we're sitting across the desk from each other. And, and, and I, you know, he asked me the questions, you know, excited to have you in the ward. Tell me about yourself. And I tell him a little bit about me and, and, and then I just kind of, he's like, how are you doing? Everything good. And I, and I, I couldn't do it. Um, the shame was there that, that shame kept me from just like saying, Hey, I'm broken. I need help. Help me. Um, and so I walked out of his office and I was like, dang it. Like, what am I, Oh, what's wrong with me? But, but the desire was there. Mm-hmm. The desire was there. And I, and I told God in my heart every day, I would get on my knees and pray and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. I got, you got to show me how to do this, but I'm going to try show up for me. And he did. And it came in the weirdest way. And it, it's going to be really weird for me to say this because some people won't get it, but some will. I met my, my now wife around that time. And somehow she saw through all the darkness and, and she, she loved me. And that helped me to start to feel like I had some value again from like a human being, not, mm-hmm. not just God, but from like a, a human being. And we decided to go to a family home evening um, about a week after that. We went, we had fun, it felt great. We felt the spirit. So we, we finished and we said, hey, let's, you know, let's keep this night going. Let's go get stuff to make milkshakes. And so we went to Hollywood Video. We, we rented a movie and uh, that's a thing of the past now, right? Then we went to the Smiths next door. This is in Provo, Utah. Went to the Smiths next door and we got stuff to make milkshakes. And I had just purchased a scooter a few a few weeks before that. And we we're we we're heading home, going probably about 40 miles an hour. And it was just starting to turn dark. It wasn't dark, dark yet, but it was just starting to turn dark. I had my light on and everything. And there was a young gal coming the opposite direction. And we still don't know exactly the details to what happened. We think she got distracted. She was going to make a left-hand turn going into a residential neighborhood. And we think she got distracted and looked up and saw a scooter and thought, oh, I'm either going to hit him or I've got to beat him. Um, And so she accelerated and turned way too early left. Mm -hmm. And she hit us head on going about 40 to 45. And we didn't have helmets on because we, you know, we weren't going very far. um, Plus, you know, young dumb sometimes you're you're invincible right so anyway we didn't have helmets on and alicia was scalped she broke her neck and back in seven places she broke her femur shattered her knee and shattered her foot and she was awake and alert the entire time i on the other hand um broke my skull in three places had traumatic brain injuries broke my leg And I was comatose at the scene. They thought I was dead. So the police got there before the paramedics and they started taking pictures of it like it was a crime scene. And I was just laying there. They, they, I wasn't breathing. Nobody felt a pulse on me. And so they thought that I was, I was dead. There was a gentleman sitting at the light where this girl was going to turn left into Spencer Hall. And he had just given a blessing to one of his best friends. And he was going home from that. And he was sitting at the light and he was on the phone with a friend of his who is a doctor. And he sees us get hit. He says, I just saw an awful accident. He's getting out of the car. He's running up and he's, and, and he's saying to his friend, like, what do I do? What do I do? 
And his doctor friend says, look at them. Is, is, are either of them moving? And he says, yeah, there's one that's moving. The other one's not new. The doctor says, pass by the one that's not. He's probably dead. And, and so he went to Alicia and he kind of put her scalp back together, held her, held her together, together, tried to keep her from moving. And then right there in that chaotic moment, um, he gave her a blessing. You, you could just see for me once, once I had that moment with God and I said, I'm going to try, you got to show me how to do this. It's like everything lined up perfectly, timing, everything. That accident, I, I was in a coma for three days. They didn't think I was going to make it. I woke up, had no idea who I was. I literally said to the doctors, hi, I'm the Wolverine. And they, they, yeah, they looked at me like, uh, sure you are. Anyway, brain injury, here you go. But my frontal lobe and my side lobe were bleeding. And the reason that I survived is because it broke a, a bone in my eardrum and the blood came out of my ear. So when my, when the bleeding happened, no pressure built up. And so mm -hmm. I, my, I was able to survive. And three days later, I woke up. That accident was a huge gift from God. Obviously, I'm being very quiet. I'm mesmerized by your story, even the second time listening to this. So much has happened in your life up to this point. A few points that I find so interesting. Number one, the, the simple things that we often talk about in the church, scripture study and prayer, the things that, you know, are the Sunday school answers, right? Those are the things that in your most dire of circumstances brought you back into the light. Those may be very simple answers, but there is so much power in our willingness to go to our Book of Mormon suspend disbelief and read with an open heart. And then second, to believe that at any point, no matter how low we have sunk, God wants to hear from us and we are always worthy to approach him. I mean, there are so many pieces to your story that I find so remarkable, but coming now to this point where you've been in this terrible accident, I mean, this is horrific. And yet for you, you feel like this is, this is the time when God really was intervening in your life so that you could really make this turnabout, this 180 change, because he knew what you could become. You didn't know yet, but what an interesting um, interruption. And it's interesting how the Lord works because, you know, my dad had an interruption in his life. He was arrested. <laughs> and oftentimes it's, what may appear to be some of the worst things that happen in our lives, that is God interrupting enough so that we will turn to him. That's absolutely true. And what I've learned in my life, and, and if there's any parents listening to this, or there's any young kids that by chance hear this, failure's okay. Why do we only celebrate the wins? You know, like remember when we're parents and our child is trying to learn to walk and they fall and how excited we are that they're trying. We don't care about the fall. Like our child wasn't good enough that they couldn't make it to the table two feet, two feet away. We don't, we don't even think that thought. So why do we do that? It, when, when our kids get a little older, why do we do that with failure? Why do we put so much emphasis on the fact that we fell short of something? 
we can celebrate those things and say, hey, good try. Like, that's awesome that you tried, right? Like that failure right there is so cool because you want to know why? That's going to drive you to work harder, to do better. We've got to create safe places for failure because we're supposed to fail. We say we love Jesus Christ. We say we're his disciples, but yet we don't want to make mistakes. We don't, we want to be perfect. We, we can't be. He came to allow us to fail. Without those failures, without those dark moments, we would never see the light as bright as it truly is. And, and, and when you see that light as bright as it is, your gratitude, it grows exponentially. And, and that's, it's beautiful how that works. It's a, it's a perfect system. It's a hard system, but it's, it's a perfect system. Anyway, um, going forward, you know, I, I, it took a long time to heal. I, traumatic brain injuries are interesting. I, my now wife is, we're in the hospital. We were there for probably about five, six weeks. And uh, she's got a halo on and she can barely move. She's got pins out of her toes. They, she's lucky to keep her foot. They almost cut, they almost amputated her leg from the knee down that night. Um, it was that bad, but there's, there was a phenomenal doctor and he said, I can do it. And they kind of pieced it together. Pretty amazing. Um, my, my mom and my family were very worried about me. They didn't know if I was going to make it for the whole time I was in that, that coma until about the last day as there wasn't a lot of brain activity. And, and I always joke about this, but the one thing I always say is, well, my, my family knew though that I didn't have much brain activity before. So they were like, oh, this is, this is totally normal. It's good. Oh. <laughs> so, no, no, no. But I can laugh about it now. But anyway, um, so, so I woke up, things are good. Um, not, you know, I, I, there's no clarity, but I laugh because my wife would always say, you couldn't remember anything at all during those first few weeks except for the scores of the basketball games. <laughs> like I could remember who won the games the night before, but I couldn't remember anything else. And um, yeah, so, you know, long time healing, go back to my mom's house, live there because I have to. Um, very humbling. But Tara, the, the addiction doesn't just go away. Um, that takes work. It takes work to get into an addiction. It doesn't just happen the first time you try a drink or a drug. That, that's not the way it works. The excitement's there, but you've got to, your body has to adapt to these things, right? And sort of get out of it, it, it same thing. And, and it took a lot of effort on my part. So of course, of course, the accident put me in a place where I didn't have any desire to drink because I, I didn't know where I was half the time. But as I healed, that definitely was there in my life. And, and so I, as I was in my, in my mom's home and, and not able to work, all of a sudden I'm starting to move around again. I'm, I've got a cane and I'm able to move around. And in my mind, it's like, well, go get alcohol, go get alcohol. And I'm like, no, I can't. You know, like I'm, I'm reading my scriptures. I feel light again. And that's the beauty of scriptures. I, I was going to say that, that point that you made is so important. Those small and simple things. Elder Scott one time said, we talk to God through prayer. He most often talks to us when we study the scriptures. It's not that we're reading about the war chapters. It's not that we're reading about Alma being the younger, being just this awesome story. It is like, it's so cool to hear that. And, and you see the miracles around it. But what happens when you read the scriptures is you are flooded with light. 
you are flooded with light and God can speak to you in those moments. And when you're reading his word, he speaks to you and you get answers from reading things that make no sense to why you got the answer that you just received. It's amazing, but it's real and it's light and it's truth. So I'm starting to gain this light back in my life and, and I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. And I realized they have LDS 12-step addiction recovery meetings. And I've been to AA before and I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's scary. Like it's, it's good. I get it. But like, I don't know. I, I felt like people would go to kind of meet each other and then continue on with their stuff. I don't know. Um, but LDS, I, I felt like I could give this a try. And I started to go. And the first two times I went and I sat in those meetings, I, I felt so awkward. Um, I went on my own free will, so I kept going, but I heard alcoholics for the first time talking about how prideful we are. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not prideful. I have no pride. I'm broken. Like I suck, you know, like up to this point in my life, like I feel like a failure. I don't have pride, but as I'm sitting there listening, as I'm sitting there studying these 12 steps, it's basically the one, the atonement 101. It's awesome. It's powerful it's simple and it's everything in the scriptures laid out the most simplest of forms and as, I, as i'm there in these meetings and listening to people that that have been free from these addictions for a long time that are still coming i start to hear god's voice and i start to hear him talking to me and helping me understand it's not this liquid in a bottle that's got you locked down it's the pride within you that says I know the way. I can figure it out. It's pride. It's enmity towards God. It was me thinking that I needed to figure it out for myself without letting him help me by going to him and asking him how or asking him to take it from me. And as I started to hear that, again, I was flooded with light. And I overcame alcohol. I don't, I don't struggle anymore. And I loved it so much that I, after a couple of years, I, I became a facilitator of the program. And then after that, I, you know, I served in a bishopric for a while, so I didn't have the time for it. Then I needed to somehow give back, right? I think that's the beauty of mistakes and failures. That's the beauty of the atonement is when you've had a taste. It's like Lehi when he gets to the tree. He reaches up, he takes the fruit, takes a taste, and he turns around immediately to find his family. You guys, you got to try this. It's amazing. That's what the atonement does. It makes all those mistakes and failures and everything that's hard make sense. And it gives you all of a sudden, because of all those mistakes and failures, it now gives you an opportunity to do something for somebody else who is struggling. And now you're able to go to places where you weren't able to go to before to find their heart, not to grab them from up on the step above. That's not what you're supposed to do, but you're supposed to meet them where they are and you're supposed to bring them to his table because that's exactly what he does. I love your story. So much pain, so much heartache, so much darkness, but I mean, to use your, your podcast name, you know, come towards delight. It's because of your darkness that you have been able to recognize the light for what it is. And the experiences that you have had have transformed you, but because you have brought it to the savior. Um, and it wasn't 
you're doing, but, but your willingness to turn towards him, which has allowed you to get to this point in your life. When we can really grasp the breadth and the depth of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the love that our heavenly father has for us, it's a game changer for so many of us, as, as you felt as a young man, you had the gospel, but you didn't understand it. For anyone who is listening, who feels like they are beyond hope, beyond help, I hope that they have heard you and that they will believe in your hope if they don't have hope yet for themselves. So when we see someone struggling and distancing themselves from their loved ones and from God, how do we best reach out to those people and help them? If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, think about his life and the pattern that he showed us. He spent his time among the poor, the broken, the addicted, the liars, the thieves, the che- whatever, among regular people, right? That have lots of problems. That's where he went. Why did he go to rebuke them and chastise them and make them feel like they, they're the worst? No, he went to lift them. He went to teach them their value. He went to help them look up and understand to live a higher way. And that's what we can do. And I think, I think it starts, it starts in the way that we present ourselves to people in general. And what I mean by that is there was a, there was a lesson that we had on Sunday about ministering. Ministering is a beautiful thing. And, and, as members of the church, we have to recognize that like, just because we have two or three families assigned to us, that doesn't mean that that's where our ministering stops or starts. Like, yeah, make sure you check on them, make sure, but don't check on them because you're like, you, you have to be there to help them with all the big stuff in their life. Right. you like, you need to find out if they, uh, if they don't have any income or if they're sick and, and something is really awful is happening. You need to know all those, like, that's not the point. Yeah. Consider yourself lucky if, if something happens to one of your families where you can step in and, and there's something tragic that you actually like are be, there to be able to serve them in that consider yourself lucky like that's a sacred thing as a minister as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It gives us the opportunity to minister to every single human being on this planet. Whenever we connect with anybody, anybody we pass by we have an opportunity to help them feel loved, (laughs) to help them feel appreciated, to help them feel acknowledged. And, And I believe, what I truly, truly believe is people get in these dark places and feel completely shut off and siloed because they haven't felt that enough in their lives. Um, there's, there's two kinds of people in this world. It's people that want to give people their value by loving them and finding the great things about them. Or it's people that see you as a, almost as a dollar sign. What can this person give back to me? Disciples of Christ are those people that go and they, they help re-energize batteries everywhere we go. We give people back their value. We, we give people back that feeling of appreciation and that they're, they're, they're worth something. 
because that's what he does for us. We can be loving and kind in the right way in this world that we live in. And when we do that to every person we come across in our circles, and when we set ourselves up as a safety net for them, and we're vulnerable about who we are, stop being perfect. We're not. We're not supposed to be. And for us to think that we should be, that's, that's a failure in our own minds. There's nothing as you study the scriptures that says, you need to be perfect. There's one line where Christ says, be therefore perfect. But I think that we forget that the only way that we can is through him. And he doesn't expect it from us right now. He expects us to try the best we can. But in doing that, we have to love. That's how we show him that we love him. Is we love, his, we love our Heavenly Father's children. So anyway, going back to what your question was, if we strive to live as the Savior did, he would love first, first and foremost, always. Our job is not to judge. We go, we love, we bring people in, bring them to the table. Doesn't matter what denomination, doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what race, we bring them to our table. We let them know they are safe with us that we love them, that we care about them in small ways. And then when something happens where they get in a really bad spot in life, I know that they're going to turn to you because you've created that safety net for them. Now, if they're there and, and, and you just learned about it or your friend gets there and somehow you missed it because that happens to us all, show up. You got to show up. I remember in Arizona when I was starting to get into my darkest times, family and friends, I only had, like literally I can look back and, and I can see about two people who showed up for me without judgment and love that, that made me feel safe. They didn't show up often, but that, that seed of hope stayed with me because they showed up for me. And then when I came back to Utah and, and I was broken and, and living with my mom and dad in shame, one of my best friends would come and he would text me throughout the week just to say hi. He had a family with, with four kids at this point. He had time for me. He would text me throughout the week. And then on Sundays, he'd come and knock on my door and, and just, he wouldn't come and say, hey, come go to church with me. He'd come in and just say, hey, I love you. I was just thinking about you today. I knew what he was doing. And I'm grateful for that. Now, then I was like, gosh, come on. But like, it kept that seed of hope in me that I was, that I was loved and that I was important enough for people to come and care about me. The short answer of it is, Tara, is it starts with the pre-work, right? We've got pre-work to do. And that's when we leave our house every single day, we need to truly be disciples of Christ and minister to every single person that we cross paths with in whatever capacity it is. Show love, point people to light, you don't have to say God if you're scared to say God. I'll, I'd say God and I don't care. Like I, I talk about Jesus Christ with people that don't believe it. It doesn't matter. I, I love it. And, and if you do it right, people love it. People want to talk to you about that stuff. We, we get so scared about talking about it, but people want to. They, they crave it. You just have to do it the right way. And um, it's the pre-work. Hmm. It's every day we leave that, our house and so we leave our door. We have to determine in our hearts and minds. If we love him and we believe in him, we need to live as he did. Stop worrying about judging everybody. 
what they're doing in their own personal lives and are they sinning? It doesn't matter. That's not on us. Everyone's got their demons and battles. We have to love. We have to learn to love unconditionally. And we have to learn to bring people in instead of pushing people out. Well, one of my favorite verses from the New Testament is, by this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And I, you know, we, we sing the song and we talk about how much Jesus loved those around him, but do we internalize it? Do we really think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to emulate that love? Sometimes I think we go straight to judgment <laughs> as being what shows our discipleship. But one of my favorite interviews with uh, Becky and Bennett Borden, uh, their great one-liner was love the sinner, invite him to dinner. <laughs> and so as you were, anyway, right? Right? And so when yeah. you're, when you were talking about bringing people to your table, yeah, show up for them. And in, in any way that you can be a part of their life, uh, then you will have an opportunity to make an impact if you are there. So I think everything that you said is spot on, Mike. So after all this, all the heartache, all the challenge, there would have been a lot of opportunities for you to call it quits. I mean, on life, but on God. Yeah. Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? I love that. I love that question. That's a great way to end your podcast. I quit on myself um, a long time ago before I got to the moment where I wanted to end my life. I'd already given up on me. I'd, I'd already thought the worst of the worst about myself. I'm awful. I ruin everything. I quit everything. I fail at all these things. And I'm not trying to have a pity party. That's, that's darkness does that to you. He never quit on me. Um, we say hindsight's 2020. In Revelations, there's a verse that says, I stand at the door and knock. And he who hears my voice and invites me in, I will come in and I will sup with him. And, and I totally butchered that, but, but I think you get the point. He knocks on that door. He never stops knocking. And if we're willing to get up, which takes action, we have to get up, we have to choose to go to that door. And we have to choose to allow him to come into our lives. I think there's a, a very important principle there that, that sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think God is all powerful to the point where he's going to barge into your life and derail you from the tracks that you're on by choice. He doesn't do that. He's a perfect gentleman. Thank goodness he gives us signs. Thank goodness he's knocking on that door. Thank goodness he sends people into our lives to say that one thing or to do that one thing or even timing wise. There's things that we don't see on the back end that, that, I think one day we're going to look back and go, holy cow, you did so much for me. And every time I got so broken to the point where I started to think I'm done, I quit. I don't want to be here anymore. Something would spark in my heart, say a prayer or think about your mission or think about your grandpa or your dad or your mom, you know, something something good would come in those dark moments to make me hold on for a minute longer. I don't know the answers. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to know all the answers. I think that's the beauty of it, Tara, is, is I, 
as I, as I continue to live this life and like, I see all the craziness around us and just, I am so happy now to understand who I am and why I'm here that I can, I can put all of that stuff into his hands. I can trust and I can walk out my door every day saying, I'm going to go love someone today. I'm going to go serve someone today. I'm going to go do my best to follow up with my friend who I know is struggling with anxiety or PTSD today. And I'm, I'm in some way I'm going to connect with somebody to make a difference today. And if that's all I think about all day long, then I, I chalk that up as a victory all day, every day, all day long. Because I know if Christ was here on this earth right now, all this other noise is not what he'd be focused on. He'd be finding those who are in those dark spots. He'd be down at Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City, Utah, wrapping his, his arms around people who called it quits on their life a long time ago. We've got to do that for each other. Kind of stop worrying about the stuff we can't control. <laughs> we got to start making a difference, starting in our neighborhoods and our own homes. Help our kids understand there's safe, safe spaces for them to fail. And let's celebrate failures. Holy cow, that's awesome. Can you imagine if you came home after failing a test and your mom was like, that is so cool. Like, yeah, that sucks. But like, that is cool. Because guess what? It means we can try again. What, what can we learn from this? It's safe. It's okay. That's what the atonement is. And I'm grateful for it. Because it's everything. And without it, I'm nothing. Thank you so much. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been such a treat, honestly, to spend this time with you. You are a light. You are an energizer. You're out doing so much good. Thank you for turning your, your hard and dark experiences into what you are doing now today, blessing the lives of so many. Thanks, Tara. You're awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.